You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 23, verses 37 and 39. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Maul, and uh, I get to serve as one of the pastors here. We are thrilled that you are here. And for those watching online, we pray that a word would be spoken that will enrich your life in Christ. Uh, Let's pray, and we're going to dive right into today's text. Gracious Father, I pray that you would speak and shepherd your flock through your word. We desperately need you to. In Christ's name, amen. All right, family. Well, we are back in the book of Matthew. We took a little uh, break for our Advent series, and we find ourselves back uh, in the gospel of Matthew. And uh, the question I want to start off with is just simply uh, looking at uh, and asking, why did Jesus lament over Jerusalem? Uh, the passage that Caleb just read was a lament over the capital city of Israel, over Zion, over where the temple resides. And in order to find the answer to that, we have to remember the context of chapter 23, as we're going to slowly walk through the entire chapter this morning. And the context is, is Jesus is uh, set his eyes on the cross. He's come into Jerusalem in order uh, to do what he knew that God had called him to do. Jesus was born to die and he died so that he might rise again so that there would be forgiveness of sin and access to God by those who put their faith and trust in him. But Jesus, uh, probably in his early uh, 30s, um, has lived uh, in Israel, in Palestine, and he has seen uh, how Judaism uh, is lived out and what it has become. And he has been public with his ministry for the last three years, and his heart is grieved at what he sees. So he comes into Jerusalem during Passover, which is the time where Jerusalem would be its most uh, populated, um, a time that is uh, one of the most celebrated times um, for the Jewish people. And he enters into the temple, which is the most sacred space uh, for the Jews. And as he enters into the temple, he does a few things. One, um, he heals people. Um, Two, he flips over tables and he curses uh, those who are uh, excessively uh, making money off of God's people and turning temple sacrifice into personal profit in an egregious way. And then uh, third, he begins to go back and forth with the religious leaders of his day, mainly 
the Pharisees and the scribes. And so what ends up happening is as they are going back and forth, the Pharisees ask Jesus a question in chapter 21. By whose authority are you doing these things? In other words, who died and made you king? Who gave you the permission to come in the temple to do miracles and to speak as if you're a boss? And so as they begin uh, to ask Jesus question after question and put him on the hot seat in front of his disciples, in front of the crowds, it becomes clear to everyone around that Jesus is a bad man. Jesus is smarter than their most prized leaders. Question after question, he answers and he aces the test. And then at the end of chapter 22, he does something that's absolutely phenomenal. He flips it back on them. And he asks them a simple question by pointing them to Psalm 110, which, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And in Psalm 110, Jesus simply asked them if David is, uh, is, is king, your, your best example of king, how is it then that he speaks of the coming Messiah not only as his son, but as Lord? How is it that David's son is David's Lord? And the point that Jesus was making is that the Messiah that they awaited for was more than just a Messiah in a sense of a political person. The Messiah um, that they have been waiting for is also Lord over David himself. He's not only the son of man, he's the son of God. But look at their response in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. Jesus shuts up the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes are the heroes of the day. And not only are they the heroes of the day, they are the ones with whom everyone uh, who has the most, the most clout with the common Jewish person. And so that's why we're going to see later uh, that they are able to stir up the crowds against Jesus. Some of the same people who was yelling Hosanna by the end of the week is going to be yelling crucify him as they were uh, the people with whom uh, the group with whom uh, everyone else followed. And so Jesus in chapter 23 is going to unleash woes on the Pharisees and he's going to say some of the hardest things in in scripture. He's going to call them a broad of vipers, a family of venomous snakes. He's going to call them whitewashed tombs. He's going to call them children of hell, frauds, and hypocrites. And the reason Jesus can do this without contradicting what he's taught about loving his enemies is this. Jesus has been patient for well over three years and preached to them, invited them into the kingdom, showed and and, and validated that he is God through his signs and through his teaching. He is the walking Torah. He is the very law of God. He didn't abolish it. He perfectly fulfilled it. He is God in the flesh. And these religious leaders who claim to know God and love God, they don't know God. They don't love God. These religious leaders who claim to be close to God, they're far away from him. They worship him with their mouths, but their heart don't belong to him. And now their time is a judgment has come. And so Jesus is going to judge them 
in chapter 23. And that's because they did not repent and they did not follow him. In chapters 24 through 26, we see that Jesus is going to pronounce judgment on on Israel. And we see that he's going to predict um, a, a future day of judgment on them because they went the way of these false teachers. And so the thing I want to look at today and what we're titling the sermon is simply uprooting your inner Pharisee. And what I want to look at today is how we as Christians need to heed Jesus's warning and be very careful that we do not become a people who worship him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. We want to be careful to make sure that we are people who are following Jesus humbly and with our whole heart. And it's very easy for us to be like the Pharisees, to be filled with knowledge, to know the Bible inside and out, to come to Sunday, worship, lift up holy hands, and not walk with Jesus. And so I want to look at five things in this text, uh, five signs that Jesus criticized the Pharisees for. And I pray that as we slowly walk through this text, I'm going to let the text speak for himself, that the Lord would shine a light on your heart so that you can turn and follow Jesus. Not culture, uh, not seek to uh, identify with a certain uh, denomination or group, not find your identity in, in your knowledge or your pedigree, but in humbly and wholeheartedly following the one who lived and died for you so that you can be reconciled to God and live the good life. Y'all ready to go on this journey real quick? The first thing that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for is that they didn't practice what they preach. They didn't practice what they preach. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses Now, some scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes. And again, they are seated on a seat of Moses, which means they have authority in Israel. They have legal authority in Israel. They have spiritual authority in Israel as they interpret the law and lead Israel. And then he says this, therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. And so to people who are hearing this, they're thinking, what in the world? Look at them. Look how they're dressed. Look how devout they are. Look how well they pray. Look how much they give. Look how they fast. But Jesus is warning them, don't believe it. Right. Uh, Pay attention to what they teach from the Torah that's true. But don't follow all the extra laws that they are seeking to put on you and the oral traditions that they they equate with the very word of God. And how is it that we know that they weren't obedient to God and that their righteousness was not like true righteousness? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Jesus teaches them. He said, unless your righteousness goes past the righteousness of the Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because the Pharisees' righteousness was not a true righteousness. It was external, but their hearts were not regenerated. They did not love God. 
And Jesus is warning them. If they loved God, they would be following me. If they loved God, rather than turning their nose at me after I did a miracle, such as raising the dead, healing a lame man whose friends dropped him through the roof of a home, healing a leopard, rather than turning their hearts and making it cold to me, they would have followed me, repented, and trusted me. They don't practice what they preach. And this is a good word for us as teachers and preachers of the word. I've seen so many pastors fall, and I pray that the Lord would give me grace uh, to persevere and that the anchor will hold. Because those who are in leadership positions can become deceived and to believe that it's all about what you say and not about what you do. But the Apostle Paul is going to tell his protege, Timothy, he says, watch your life and your doctrine. Don't just watch what you teach. But make sure you are, by the grace of God, following and obeying Jesus. I love what Ezra says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra, a a priest, uh, is described as this. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's amazing. Here's what I want you to see. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart. Ezra's heart was transformed. It wasn't just that Ezra determined to teach the statues of the Lord. It's that Ezra had given his heart to Yahweh. The Pharisees had not. Second, the Pharisees were proud. They were proud. Look at this. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them, right? So they're preaching hard sermons to them, but they're not helping them. They're not helping them practically. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. I've got a picture of what that looks like here. Them enlarging philanthropies. A philanthropy is, uh, was a, a box that had a, a leather uh, uh, a tie around it. And it was often worn on the arms of, uh, of Jewish people as well as around their heads uh, during times of prayer so that they can open it and, and they'll find scriptures there that they would write to, to help them to pray. And what happened is this uh, tool that was supposed to be used to, uh, to help remind them of Scripture and for them to bathe in it uh, now became something that they used in order to show how holy they were. They got bigger and bigger and bigger throughout the centuries. And so if someone had a big philanthropy on their head, people would look like, wow, look how committed they are, right? Man, they can barely walk. Their head is falling over, right? Um, and look at the tassels that they put on their garments. It's like over and beyond what you could expect, Look at this. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called rabbi by people. And Jesus is not saying that we uh, should not uh, dress ministerially ever, uh, that that we uh, should not uh, go to banquets where we may be honored that we should not sit in the front seat at at church or something like that. The key here 
is that we need to guard our hearts to make sure that we don't love it and that that's not where we find our identity. The Bible tells us to give honor to whom honor is due, but we need to be careful that we are not seeking it and living for the approval of it. One of the woes that Jesus tells in another synoptic gospel is he says, woe to the Pharisees with whom all men speak well of. Or woe to you with whom everyone speaks well of. Because when you are living for the approval of others, you will cease to walk in integrity. And you will be owned by people's approval. Rabbi here is is more than just teachers. It's more like chief teacher, ultimate teacher, Lord. Jesus is warning us against uh, pedigrees and and titles. And not, I don't think that Jesus is saying that we uh, can't call someone anything. We can't call, he's going to say in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because uh, you have one instructor, the Messiah. I, I don't think Jesus's point is that we never can bestow a title on someone. I, I believe that there's a, a sense of uh, hyperbole here. And I, if I had time, I would phrase that out more. I believe what Jesus is saying is we need to be careful to make sure that we're not exalting anyone on the level of God and that we're not creating a culture where brothers and sisters of of Christ are intimidated by other brothers and sisters in Christ because they have achieved something, because they have a doctorate, because they went to a certain school, because they uh, outside of of the sanctuary has uh, come into a certain level of success. Kind of looks like what we see in James chapter 2. Jesus is fighting against where there's a culture where people who are important in society and who have done certain things, they get to sit up front. They are the ones who are praised and people who are not are least important and they sit in the back. But the Pharisees, man, they ate it up. They ate it up. And I'll I'll be honest, in reading this this week, I just had to pray and, and beg God to protect me from myself to protect me from cherishing. Um, when a member of Sojourn pulls me aside at a grocery store and is excited to see me and shares a testimony, to protect me from wanting to be seen or praised or lauded, and to remember that that is all vain. And a heart that is cherishing that and a person who's not putting that to death is feeding that inner Pharisee And before you know it, I can be led astray through pride and greed and selfishness. And guess what? You can too. And perhaps what you're clinging to is not a professional ministerial title. Perhaps it's the word, uh, it's a position at your job or mom, dad, grandmother or deacon. Whatever it is, let's make sure we are not finding our identity in earthly identities. Third, the Pharisees neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I'm sorry, I skipped one. Uh, Third, the Pharisees made following God an excessive burden. Following God an excessive burden. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What imagery <laughs> Jesus is using throughout this? I mean, just imagine somebody uh, walking in a store and it's a, a door that you open. They just slam it in your face, right? This is a picture of what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. For you don't go in. That's powerful. They don't have a true righteousness. They're not going into the kingdom of heaven. These Pharisees who are here in the temple whom Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23. They shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Why? Woe to you. Now he's pronouncing woe. Seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, frauds, hypocrites, play actors. You travel all over land and sea to make one convert. There's not even uh, a, a sense of flourishing in their ministry. They make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you. What does that mean? That means that they are focusing and causing people to focus all on external stuff, all on putting a show. And they are not teaching people what Jesus came to teach them and what Jan, John the Baptist preached them. That those who belong to the kingdom of God are those who have been regenerated in their heart. There are those who have, uh, who have sought him with their heart. There are those who have hungered and thirst after righteousness. There's those who are mourning, who are poor in spirit. Uh, there are those who are meek. There are those who have come into the kingdom of God through a door that is low and cross-shaped. We talked about in Matthew chapter 5. It's not those who are proud, who says, I am going to put on a show. People are going to glorify me. Woe to you. Notice that these Pharisees appear moral. These Pharisees are missionaries. But while they're on mission and while they're appearing moral, their heart is clicking away at filth. Now Jesus is going to show in verse 16 through 22 uh, an example of them putting heavy burdens on people and, and not being willing uh, to lift it and making it hard for people. Woe to you blind guys who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. <laughs> the temple is the place where the presence of God is, is supposed to, to, to reside or is mostly represented. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on, it's bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes the oath by the altar takes the oath by it and by everything on it. The one who takes the oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. And if your brain is tired, that's Jesus's point. <laughs> I read so many commentaries in the last few weeks and I'm serious. I had a uh, Robinson put together a fantastic packet for me and I was reading that section and I got dizzy multiple times. And Jesus' point is, you all are making an oral tradition on oaths and wearing people out. Swear by this, don't swear by this. And we see that Jesus is going to teach 
Stop doing all that. Right? He teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, stop it. <laughs> He's like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You're wearing people out. And here's the point. They are focusing on this minute things. They are becoming very scrupulous and very detailed about matters that are not weighty and it's excessive. It's the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus came and he preached, come to me, those who are laden and heavy burdened, I'll do what? I'll give you rest. The message of the kingdom is a message of rest. Yes, it's a message of obedience, but it's obedience from a place of being loved. It's obedience from a place of being blessed, from a, a, a place of being cherished as the one who was created in the image of God, who was fearfully and wonderfully made, who has been healed by this gospel. It's not a message of do, 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 be like someone else. It's a message of freedom. And Jesus came to set the people free. Fourth, the Pharisees neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is huge. Verse 23, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. And so the Mosaic law required giving a tenth of all that one produced for the ongoing work of the Lord through the Levites and the priests. The Pharisees were so scrupulous in following this induction that they paid a tithe even from their smallest garden plants or crops. And Jesus does not say that this is wrong, but they should do this without neglecting the far more important matters of justice, of mercy, and faithfulness. When the Bible speaks about justice, it's speaking about the rightness or about righteousness. And when it speaks about mercy, it speaks about not treating people how they deserve. And we know that Jesus and his blessed attitude says, blessed are the merciful, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the reason that they are blessed is because their hearts have been changed by God and they are being made to be more like God. That is a sign of an inward transformation that they now care for the least and the vulnerable and the broken because God cares for the least, the vulnerable, and the broken. And this was, is what Jesus, uh, what the prophets taught, Micah 6, 8, to love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. This is what James was getting on the early church for. For, for talking a good talk, but never walking a good walk. He says, faith without works is dead. But these religious leaders weren't seeking justice. They weren't love and mercy, and neither were they walking humbly with the Lord. In fact, they created a way to God, which is actually no way at all, that focused on inanimate objects, rituals, and traditions that kept people away from loving people. They erected a version of the faith that allowed them to walk past the man that the Samaritan loved, as well as Samaritans. Woo! 
They focused on the less weightier things. They argued eschatology and superlapsarianism. And if you say, what are those? Don't ask me. I barely know. They argued all of these finer academic things, which is not in itself bad. And there is a place for the deeper theological and philosophical things. But they almost use that as an excuse and a reason to not engage people. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite who walk by the guy who's just been beat and wounded. But the Samaritan, this person whom the the Jewish person saw as an outcast, as, as beneath them, is the one who is the hero of the story because they actually took time to love the person who was hurting. And so many of us, myself included, have to be careful to make sure that we are not worshiping ourselves. And that we are not focusing on things that are important, but that are not the heavier things. What does the Lord require of you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and and, and, and mind and strength? And to love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't actually love people, and if you philosophize your religion, and and, and if you just, just daydream on theology and mull over theology, but you never engage people, you never share your faith, you, you barely rejoice when someone is baptized. You barely rejoice when a marriage has been saved. You barely rejoice when a person who was lost is now found. You engage people based upon their lostness and not based upon the fact that God loves them and offers the kingdom to them. Perhaps you are neglecting justice, mercy, and love. So many in our country have created a version of Christianity that protects power and privilege and that keeps us away from those people. And then we use the Bible to do so. We use the scripture as an excuse why we shouldn't feed someone, why we shouldn't have mercy upon someone, why someone doesn't deserve more. Why those communities are the way they are, rather than engaging, praying, moving forth and and believing if it wasn't for the grace of God. And not only if it wasn't for the grace of God then, but if it wasn't for the grace of God now and seeing that we are broken, we are lost, we are the chief of sinners. We need Jesus. Pharisees, not only do they neglect justice mercy and faithfulness, the Pharisees, they didn't confess, repent, and turn to follow Jesus over and over. Jesus, who is absolutely majestic. Jesus, who is absolutely wonderful. Jesus, the epitome of the perfect human being, 100% man, 100% God. Jesus, preached to him, he talked to him, he loved him, he, he challenged him, he outwitted them, and all he wanted them to do was to stop, to confess, to, to cry out to God, and to turn. They ignored. Look at this. I'm going to read this last section. But Jesus is about to go 100% in here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, frauds. 
You clean the outside of a cup and a dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of a cup so the outside of it may also become clean. Right? This is what we see on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is challenging the religious leaders who are, yes, teaching against adultery, but Jesus is like, but you all are full of lust when women walk past. You're you're turning your head. You're thinking about what you would do with them or to them. And he's like, adultery is not just sleeping with a woman, but it's, it's desiring her in your heart. He says, clean out the heart first. Don't just address the thin, address the shark. The thin is an issue, but that's not an issue. It tells us that there's a problem, but under the water, there's a whole shark. And the only way you address that shark is not by determining in your own strength to address it, in your own might. Yes, there's a sense of, of will, but it's by falling on your face and on your knees, surrendering to God, like Isaiah saying, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and allowing God to touch you and to give you clean lips and a pure heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful. Look at those tombs. Ooh, they're shining. They on fleek. Do they still say that on fleek? Stay focused. All right. Which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones that are dead in every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have, have not have taken part with them. We would have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood, not taking part with them. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins, snakes family of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Remember the parables that he taught just about this, about the king and the the person who was over a vineyard and how he sent warning after warning after warning. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah whom was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, which I believe is a story in in 2 Chronicles. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. And then that's where we get Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens gather chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Wow. That motherly picture, a tender picture. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we'll deal more with that soon as Jesus in chapter 24 is going to talk about 
this destruction of the kingdom as a sign of judgment on Israel, of the temple as a sign of judgment. But these Pharisees, they had opportunity after opportunity to confess, to repent, and to follow Jesus, but they didn't. Why? Because they were self-indulgent. They wanted to protect their own interest because they found their identity in, in being a Pharisee and being spoken well of. And so my question for you uh, today as we think about this is, is, are you on the road, even as a professing Christian, of being a modern-day Pharisee? Are you, like the Pharisees, infected with the virus of, of self-righteousness? Are you following leaders, just like the masses were? They were following these leaders who were blind guides, who was all about external things. Is that your example? It's okay to follow people on social media. It's okay to be a, a prophetic presence on social media. But I fear that so many people in our, uh, in our churches have like this constant ungodly rage. We're always mad at something. And the people that we look up to are not people who are full of love, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. Not people who are striving to be peacekeepers, but they're people who just drop bombs. You know, it's pretty easy to, to gather a following on social media. Just say controversial stuff and call everybody idiots. That's the recipe to a, a great following. Do something crazy. I was about to say something, but I shouldn't. Do something crazy. Leave it to your imagination. And then once you get those followers, hook them just by making uh, verbal cocktails and throwing it at everybody. And the church, that's who we've become. Those who lean politically left and right, we see the other sides as Pharisees. And our hate for them actually makes us Pharisees. Our hate for them and our political uh, alliances, our, our social alliances, these things that we are finding our identity are making us just like these Pharisees. And Jesus says, follow me. And when you follow me, I will make you. I will make you attractional and beautiful in an upside down way. It won't be through power and, 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 and might and, and natural wisdom, it'll be through preaching a message that is foolish to people. It will be through preaching to people that the way up is actually down. And that's the application here in this text. Look at verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How do we uproot the inner Pharisee? Same way we uproot a weed. We get down on our knees on the ground and we take it up by its root and we get it out. And in order to get down, that means we have to humble ourselves. We have to remind ourselves that we are decorated dust, that we are no better than the next person, that we are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And that while we are called to speak truth, we're also called to do it in grace. 
And while we're called to restore our fallen brothers and sisters who have gone astray from truth, as Galatians 6 tell us, we need to do it with gentleness, lest we fall astray as well. Are you humbling yourself so that you will be exalted? Are you on the path to become a modern-day Pharisee? Are you practicing what you preach or preaching while conveniently hiding your sin? Are you arrogant? Do you make it harder for people to follow Jesus? Do you focus on the finer things of theology and never God's most finest creation, which is people? Or do you focus on caring about people to the neglect of actually obeying all that Jesus has commanded? All of us have an inner Pharisee. Some of our inner Pharisee comes out when it comes to how parents educate their kids. Some of our inner Pharisee comes out when it comes to our diet or working out. Some of us, our inner Pharisee uh, comes out when it comes to disciplining, politics. And the key is, is to keep putting that inner Pharisee to death by reminding ourselves that we have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ within me, that our lives are hidden with Christ and that it's not about me. Open your hands. Stop clenching your fists. Fists. Stop dogging out your brother or sister. Stop dogging out your wife or your kids. Stop dogging off your coworker and your, your neighbor. Stop believing the lie that if everyone was just like you, if everyone would just do better and be like you, the world would be a better place. Your heart is naturally deceitful. And the only thing that is keeping your heart from being the most horrendous person on this planet is the grace of God. Praise God for his grace. And remember that we repent as a result of kindness, not being browbeaten. God is in the business of bringing life to Pharisees. He did it with Nicodemus, and he did it with Paul. And perhaps you're like Paul today. You're like, you know what? I am finding my identity in what other people think about me. I am living as an approval suck. And when people are affirming me, I feel great. And when there's no affirmation, my world comes apart. I am living as if the way in which God's kingdom is going to be ushered in is through a political party, a person or personality. I am blindly following a spiritual leader, believing that the good life is found in his or her teaching as opposed to in Christ himself. And today I want to invite you just to confess that, to repent that repent from it and to turn to Jesus and follow him and remember that he is the one who will make you. That he is the one who will give you life more abundantly. That he is the one who loves you with a perfect love that casts out all fear.
that he is the one who offers you forgiveness of sin. That it's your faith in him that enables you to experience his presence and to live free. Follow Jesus, obey him, and uproot that inner Pharisee. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard truths, but truths that we need to hear nonetheless, that I need to hear nonetheless. Lord, I need your help. I need your help to not perform. I need your help to not find my identity and what others think or, or how well I, I think that I'm doing as a, as a father, as a husband, as a, as a pastor. Lord, I need your help to live from the inside out and not from the outside in. And Lord, we need your help as a church to not seek to be entertained or to entertain, but to bask in your presence and your glory to be transformed by you, to be faithful disciples until we die. We need your help to love you and to cherish you. We need your gospel, your good news, that we are right with God because of Christ and that we can live the narrow way without becoming narrow towards people and harsh towards people. Only your Holy Spirit can give us that balance and that clarity. So teach us what's good. Teach us what's true. Teach us what's beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.